Well, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and to open up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage that Pastor Ken just read as we continue our sermon series, Rediscovering Church. And as we just sang together, may God grant us his help and guide us in the next several minutes that we have together. Well, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 says, he who spares the rod hates his child. But he who loves his child is careful to discipline him. As parents, and even if you're not a parent, you have been a child, we recognize that discipline is good. It's a good thing to discipline. In fact, God's word, what I just read, said that discipline is not only a good thing, it's actually a very loving thing to do. And in fact, if we uh, refrain from disciplining our children, it's actually a very unloving thing to do. That's not a good thing. We recognize, as parents, and because God's word says so, that God's good design for the family involves discipline. This is good, and it's loving. But what's interesting is that when it comes to discipline within the family of God, within the church, we're not so sure. We hesitate. Uh, we, we balk a little bit at the idea of discipline within the family of God. We're not so sure that the discipline that is good and loving in the home is good and loving in the family of God just not so sure. It doesn't seem to quite equate to the same thing. It often, for us, just feels too unloving to talk about and to even try to initiate discipline within the family of God. It feels too judgmental. It, uh, it feels like we're being harsh with one another or being too legalistic. And that's natural to feel that way. And it's no surprise, then, that for many of us, including for many churches, uh, we just don't know what to do with the topic and the very clear New Testament imperative to engage in church discipline. We just don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to think about it. And so it's no surprise that many churches today have different ways of carrying out church discipline. They have different approaches, different philosophies when it comes to church discipline. So you have some churches who, uh, because they fear coming across as unloving or uncaring or unkind to their own people, they just don't touch the topic at all. They don't do church discipline because they're afraid of coming across as unloving. You have other churches that refuse to do church discipline, but for a slightly different reason. They look at the process of church discipline and they just view the whole thing as ineffective. Why do it? Why go through all the heartache, all the headache of church discipline if someone can just opt out of the situation? They can just opt out of the process. They can leave the church, move down the road, and join another church. So why go through the process if someone can just, if they want to, opt out of it? Why do it? And then there are other churches that do believe that uh, this is something that they ought to do when it's appropriate, um, but they often mishandle the process. 
They're too harsh or they're too hasty in how they go about church discipline. And typically that's because they don't share the same goals that are reflected in the Bible and they don't follow the same process that's laid out for us in the scriptures. And so with all this inconsistency, with all this uncertainty, with all of the discomfort that comes from this topic of church discipline, what are we supposed to think about it? If we believe that we ought to carry it out when it's appropriate, how do we go about doing that? Well, our text for this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, will help provide us with some of those answers. We'll get a glimpse in today's text of some of the motivations that ought to be involved when it comes to church discipline. We'll get a glimpse at some of the rationale behind it, as well as briefly, we'll get a look at the goal of church discipline. What are the goals behind the process of church discipline? Now, our passage for this morning is just one chapter, and it's not going to say everything there is to say about the process of church discipline. It can't. It's just one passage, and it's dealing with a very specific situation in the Corinthian church. If today we're going to be a fully-orbed teaching on church discipline, we would need other scriptures. We would need Paul's teaching elsewhere in the New Testament. We would even need to look at uh, Old Testament teachings on the importance of discipline. And of course, we would want to take a closer look at Jesus' own words about church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, but we're not going to do that this morning. This morning's focus is much more narrow in scope. We're dealing with just one passage, but this one passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is a good starting point for us. It will give us a good starting point for understanding the nature and the process of church discipline. And one of the first things that we notice in this chapter regarding church discipline is that church discipline must be motivated by holiness. It must be motivated by holiness. It can't be motivated by personal animosity or vindictiveness, or someone holding a grudge, it must be motivated by holiness. Look at verse 1 with me. The Apostle Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. I think it's funny, uh, every once in a while, you'll hear someone talk about wanting to go back to the early church. We, we got to recover what they uh, had in the early church. We've lost it. The church today needs to go back to the early church, and they forget that this is the early church. And we're not even talking about the rest of 1 Corinthians and all the topics that Paul has to bring up and deal with among the Corinthian church, but this is the first century church. This is the early church. It's a situation that is enough to make us blush. It's bizarre. We have a believer, a man who claims to follow Christ, and yet he has a sexual relationship with what Paul says is his father's wife. This is called incest. And it's an ongoing relationship. Paul kind of euphemistically says in verse 1, that a man has his father's wife. Not had, this is present tense, has his father's wife. And if you have the new NIV, 
The rest of the passage kind of reflects this present tense reality, this ongoing reality. Now, most likely, the the woman that's in question here um, was not this man's biological mother. Paul would have used a different word for that. What he says is it's this man's father's wife. So likely this man's father remarried at some time later on, and maybe the father's out of the picture, and this man has this relationship with his father's wife. But even if that is the situation, Paul says it's of such an egregious nature, it's so bizarre that even the pagans don't put up with this. Even they look at a situation like this and think, those Christians are odd. This is bizarre. And yet, far from feeling ashamed, far from seeing how, how unholy and messed up this relationship is, the Corinthians are actually proud. Look at verse 2. Paul says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? You're proud. How could you possibly be proud? That's a good question. What led them to this point that would make them proud of this relationship? How could they have gotten to this point? There's probably many ways that we could answer that question. Uh, Paul doesn't spell out all of the reasons as to what may, may have uh, contributed to them becoming proud about this situation. Probably part of the answer has to do with a misunderstanding of, of Paul's doctrine of grace. We dealt with this several months ago when we were in the book of Romans, and some people understood Paul's teaching on grace to be a license for sin. And it's possible that that's what's going on here in 1 Corinthians, that the Corinthian believers think, well, hey, if God will give us more grace when we sin, let's keep on sinning. That's just more grace. So they might have had a misunderstanding of God's grace. But the emphasis that Paul focuses on here in this passage actually has to do with something else. It has to do with the Corinthians' low regard for God's holiness. Look at verse 2 again. Paul says, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? The new NIV says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? This word that Paul uses here for grief or for mourning, it kind of gives us the picture of someone who is experiencing deep anguish, deep sorrow, uh, pain over their sin, especially in light of God's standards, God's holiness. It's actually the picture that we get of the prophet Isaiah. If you remember the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he gets a vision of God's glory in God's throne room, and what's the first thing he does when he sees God's holiness? He says, woe to me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is the kind of result, response, that Paul was hoping would be the case with the Corinthians. This is how they should have responded, with deep anguish and repentance and fear. As one commentator says, the Corinthians, when confronted with this sin, they ought to have been singing in a lower key. But they were prideful. 
There's a pastor that I uh, deeply respect. He's uh, a man who's been in the ministry for about five decades. And uh, there was one Sunday morning where he brought to his congregation um, an ongoing, unrepentant case of adultery. And that's the key here. This is what Paul's dealing with in 1 Corinthians 5. An ongoing, unrepentant relationship. This wasn't a one-off thing. This pastor, though, brought this case to the church about a man who was a member of the church, was in an ongoing, unrepentant, adulterous relationship. He was also a missionary within the church. And uh, this is what the pastor said on one Sunday morning when he brought this to the church's attention. He said, I enter this next hour with more fear and trembling than I think any other morning of my ministry. Not for fear that we are wrong, but for fear of what God is going to do in judgment. That's the kind of response that ought to characterize a church, and certainly our own lives, when we see our sin in light of God's holiness. It ought to result in a sense of sobriety, godly fear, not complacency, and certainly not pride. And did you notice the, what, the response? Did you notice what happens when God's people are motivated with godly fear? Sin gets dealt with. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature, or the flesh, some of your translations will say, may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. This is what happens when God's people are motivated with godly fear. Sin gets dealt with. It gets removed from our lives and from the church. And this is what Paul means in verse 5 when he says, hand this man over to Satan. That's pretty harsh, that phrase there, hand this man over to Satan. We were talking about this this morning in my ABF. What do we do with that? It sounds just kind of harsh. It sounds mean to hand someone over to Satan. And there are a lot of different interpretive options of what exactly Paul means by this, but certainly within the context of chapter 5, what Paul is saying is to remove this person from fellowship. Excommunicate this person. Get rid of him. Send him off into the world, which is where Satan reigns. That's Satan's domain. Hand him over to Satan's domain. Now, this is actually the final step, typically, the last resort when it comes to church discipline, excommunication, removing someone from fellowship. Typically, this is the the last resort of the process of church discipline. And it may sound harsh, But Paul's not trying to be mean here. He's not trying to be harsh or vindictive or anything like that. He's actually hoping that this very painful experience of being removed from the family of God will bring this man to his senses. We don't know how 
But we can suspect that being removed from the place where love abounds, where we love one another, where we extend grace to one another, where we extend mercy to one another, where we care for one another, where we speak truth to one another, being removed from that environment, Paul is hoping, will bring this man to his senses and result in his repentance. Paul says, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature, or so that the flesh, which is that inclination within all of us that wants to rebel against God, may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Paul loves this man. Paul cares for this man. He wants to see him come to repentance. He's not being vindictive. What he has is what he wants the church to do is in this man's best interest. He wants him to be saved. I can imagine someone at this point saying, Drew, I understand uh, what you're saying about church discipline, and I understand what Paul's saying here about church discipline, but man, when it gets to that point where you have to excommunicate someone, doesn't that just seem unloving? How can that possibly be a loving thing to do amongst believers? I thought Jesus wanted us to be about loving one another. We're supposed to be known for our love, not excommunicating one another. And that's a good objection. And it's one that's worthy of a response. And it's one that I'll just say personally, I feel. I get that. I'm there with you. It does feel unloving to get to that point in church discipline where you're now removing someone from fellowship. Let me encourage you to think about an imaginary situation. Imagine going to your doctor because you've been experiencing some discomfort, some pain, and um, it turns out the doctor discovers that you have a life-threatening illness. You have cancer. And you're going to die from it. And the only way that you are going to live, the only way that we can deal with this situation is to remove it. If we don't remove it, you won't live. You won't make it. What would you think of your doctor if, because he um, was wanting to come across as loving or caring or kind, what if he downplayed your situation? What if he kept from you the severity of your situation, of this life-threatening situation? What if, because he was afraid of putting you through a very painful experience, what if he didn't recommend surgery? Because he didn't want to put you through that. What would you think of him? I think we all recognize that if our doctor were being motivated out of a sense of love, and he didn't tell us the severity of our situation, and he didn't recommend surgery, the only thing that would save us, we would conclude that this man has a very messed up view of love. That's not how we understand love. And so I suspect that you, probably like me, we need a more biblical definition of love. Like what we see in Hebrews chapter 12. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to what the author says. The author says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. God loves you. You can expect discipline. He disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. 
You see, if our goal when it comes to church discipline is the same as the Apostle Paul's goal, which is the restoration of this man, which is the repentance of this man, which is this man's salvation, then far from being unloving, church discipline is actually one of the most loving things, when appropriate, that we can do for one another. Because it's about our holiness. And so we see in 1 Corinthians 5 that church discipline must be motivated by holiness. But Paul's going to go on and say that church discipline is also rooted in the church's identity. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, your boasting is not good. In other words, it's not fitting. It's not fitting. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Paul's saying, don't you recognize that this one man's sin, which is like yeast, if it's left unchecked, it's going to spread. It's going to infect the entire church. Don't you recognize that? Verse 7, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. This is who you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, what Paul is doing here in these couple of verses, this is his very consistent and kind of classic way of motivating God's people to do what God expects them to do by reminding them of who they are. He reminds them of who they are. He says, remove the yeast, be holy. Why? Because you already are holy. You are an unleavened batch of dough. This is who you are, so become who you already are. You're holy. Christ died to make you holy. Therefore, become what you are. Be holy. Remove the yeast. It's important. In fact, it's, I would say, maybe the key when it comes to growing in the Christian life, what Paul is doing, it's crucial for us to understand. He's reminding them about who they are. And that's why he can command them to do a holy thing, like remove yeast. Paul is not commanding an unholy people to do a holy thing. That's an impossibility. It's not possible for unholy people to do something holy. He can only command them to be holy because they already are holy. This is who they are. In church, this is who we are. Because Christ has died to make us holy. It would be like telling someone with muddy hands to clean a white shirt. This is an impossibility. They're only going to make matters worse. Someone with muddy hands cannot clean a white shirt. But someone with clean hands they can be expected and commanded to clean a white shirt. This is what Paul is saying. You, church, you're holy. This is why Paul can say, do something holy, like remove the yeast from among you. Because of who they are, because Paul reminds them of their holiness, their holy identity, which Christ died to secure, he then commands him like he does in verse 8. In light of who they are, he says in verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast of malice and wickedness, that's not who you are anymore, 
but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Become what you are. I could imagine at this point yet another objection, and it's, and it's a good one, I get it. Um, I, I've, I've thought the same things. I could imagine someone saying at this point, it just seems like in today's world, church discipline is ineffective. I mean, if you're, if you're in the process of disciplining someone who claims to be a believer, and if they can just opt out of the process and join a church down the road, or, or move to another town and join a new church, why even go through all the headache? Why go through the heartache? Why make people upset? Why do it? It just seems ineffective. And that's, that's a good, good objection. It's one that we ought to respond to. And I would respond in this way. And that is to say that there's more than one measure when it comes to the effectiveness of church discipline. There's more than one measure. The first and the most obvious measure is related to the person in question. Did that person eventually respond the way that we hoped they would? Did they repent? Did they confess? Were they restored? That's one measure of the effectiveness of church discipline. Did this person come to their senses? Did they see the error of their way? And did they repent? That's obviously what we want. But that's not the only measure of effectiveness when it comes to church discipline. In this passage, Paul is even more concerned with the purity of the church as a whole. He is concerned that this one man's sin is going to spread like a cancer and infect the entire batch. And so by removing this man, he is hoping that this will preserve, that this will maintain the purity of the church. And so when we think about the effectiveness of church discipline, we can't just get caught up on whether or not someone opts out of the situation and just leaves the church. Was the church as a whole spared? Was that cancer removed so that other people didn't fall prey to it? That's another measure of effectiveness, and it's the one that Paul is more concerned about in this passage than just that man's individual repentance. So church discipline, Paul says, it's got to be motivated by holiness, and it's rooted in the church's holy identity. But in the remainder of chapter 5, he's going to say that while church discipline is concerned with being set apart, it's concerned with being holy, it doesn't imply separatism. It doesn't imply that we become separatists. Look at verse 9. He says, I've written to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Apparently, in Paul's previous letter, which is referenced in verse 9, so Paul had some previous communication with the Corinthians in verse 9, um, apparently they misunderstood what he was saying. 
He was telling them to not associate with sexually immoral people, and what they took that to mean is don't associate with anybody who's sexually immoral, including non-Christians. So Paul has to correct this misunderstanding. And what he says to them, in effect, is that's, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean that you're not supposed to associate with anybody. I want you in the lives of non-Christians. I want you rubbing shoulders with them. I want you building a relationship with them, loving them, serving them. I want you as salt and light in the world. But I want you, church, to look different. I want you to look distinct. I want you to look set apart. I want you to be set apart. I don't want you to be absent from the world. And Paul's major concern here is because of a watching world. The attractiveness for Paul, the attractiveness of the gospel is at stake. He is concerned that a watching world, a pagan world in first century Corinth and today, he is concerned that that world will look at the church and see no difference amongst our own people. And he is concerned that the, church will, that the world will conclude that the church has nothing to offer, that the gospel is ineffective to change lives. And so he says, for this reason, because of the, for the good of the world, don't associate with anyone who's unrepentantly, ongoingly, pridefully living just like the world. It's not only for your own good, it's for the good of the world. The world needs to see a difference. And so he finishes up in verses 12 and 13 with, a rationale for what he's asking them to do. He says in verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And by the way, I'll just point out, he's not talking about the same kind of judgment that Jesus said not to do in Matthew chapter 7. He's not saying um, what Jesus is saying. Jesus was saying, don't criticize a brother or sister. Don't point out someone else's sin when you've got a plank in your own eye. This is not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about a a critical spirit, which is what Jesus was dealing with. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. There again is that final step that last resort when it comes to church discipline, removing someone from fellowship. I suspect if you are like me, this topic of church discipline is one that conjures up all kinds of feelings of discomfort, um, uncertainty. We're not sure what to do with it. It just feels kind of unloving. But I think for many of us, we forget what God's ultimate purpose is for our lives. God's ultimate goal, his intent for your life, is not to make you ultimately happy or comfortable or for life to go easy. That's not his ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose is to make us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And God will do what he has to do to make us like his son, including this very painful process called church discipline. I want to let the Puritan 
Samuel Bolton have the last word of today's message. Listen to what Samuel Bolton says. He says, if, if Christ has borne whatever our sins deserved, and by doing so has satisfied God's justice to the full, then God cannot, in justice, punish believers for sin. For that would require the full payment from Christ and yet demand part of it from us. God does not chastise us as a means of satisfaction for sin, but for rebuke and caution, to bring us to mourn for sin committed and to beware of the like. It must always be remembered that although Christ has borne the punishment of sin and although God has forgiven the saints for their sins, yet God may in fatherly love, correct his people for sin. Christ endured the great shower of wrath, the black and dismal hours of displeasure for sin. That which falls upon believers is as a sunshine shower, warmth with wet, wet with the warmth of his love to make us fruitful and humble. That which the believer suffers for sin is not penal, it has, doesn't have to do with punishment, Arising from vindictive justice, it's medicinal, arising from a father's love. It is his medicine, not his punishment. It is his chastisement, not his sentence, his correction, not his condemnation. With that, let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you this morning that you are concerned for our holiness, that you are concerned that we become more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and that you will do what you need to to make us more like your Son. We thank you, and that though this is at times tough love, it is love nonetheless. We pray, Lord, for wisdom when it comes to Uh, as we feel your spirit leading us, when it comes to exercising church discipline, give us wisdom, courage, that we may be the people you've called us to be, unleavened bread, so that we may remain uh, intact and that we may preserve our gospel witness for a watching world that is desperately in need of seeing a church that is different and set apart. But we need your help. Would you help us to do this? We pray these things for our good and for the sake of our Lord Jesus and for a watching world. We ask these things in, in his name. Amen.